Hello and welcome to Weathering the Storm, stories of the climate crisis from Alberta and around the world. This series is a part of the Community Podcast Initiative in partnership with the Climate Disaster Project. I'm your host, Alex Yons. And I'm Ofa Adenarin. And in today's episode, we speak to Kennedy Cahoe and Tom Sampson. Two men who have been through harrowing situations and have discovered what life is like on the other side of adversity. We can all envision what happens to nature after a climate disaster. Trees that have stood the test of time, burnt to a crisp. Rivers overtaking roads and bridges. But what about the impact of climate disasters on people? Kennedy Cahoe is no stranger to harsh winters. As a Manitoba resident for the past 80 years, he's encountered a few blizzards. However, during a blizzard in October 2019, Kennedy and his wife were trapped in their cabin for five days. No way in and no way out. Here's my conversation with Kennedy, where we talk more about his home in Manitoba and the effect of the 2019 blizzard. If the power went out, we were we were done for. Like we were going to get pretty cold, and the power did go out. Some of the blizzards we were lived through the, the last couple that you were talking about earlier on. We were living at the lake, and we were scheduled to to go to the wedding. So I came home, and the other people that were the wedding, the wedding was supposed to be at the lake. But it became apparent pretty quickly that that wasn't going to happen because if you got out there, you'd never get back. So the people that were putting the wedding on loaded up and went to town, which was fine. But I went in and said to my wife, Earl, I, I said, if we're going to that wedding, we need to go now. And you need to keep in mind that we're not going to get back out here for several days because we're going to be snowed out. So we decided not to go to the wedding. We stayed at home. Could you tell me more about the people that you were living with during the October blizzard? So I got a call from the woman that owned the, the place at the lake. And she said, can we make it out? The, the, the blizzard had pretty much stopped. There was no snow anymore. It all drifted here, there, and the other place. And there was no snow falling, but there was big banks. I said, well, just a minute, I'll put my snowshoes on and I'll go see. So I went, I went down the road that goes out of the uh, little, I can't really call it a settlement, but uh, went out of the area that we were living in, that we were living in, and measured the snow crudely with a stick I had that was about oh, five and a half feet tall. And at one point, the stick had pretty much disappeared under the snow. So I went back and that, that happened. I was at least three feet everywhere. So there's no way to get in there with a car or a truck. It just gets stuck. So I went back and I told her that. And luckily for me and for them, her husband has a um, sand and gravel and cement business and he's got a, a, a big uh, huff a big loader. Next thing I know, we're sitting in the cabin and it's pretty quiet. 
minding her own business. And I heard a roar outside, and I knew who it was. It was Ross with his huff. And he cleaned, <laughs> he cleaned the road all the way from the highway into our into the back of our cabin and, and the garage. And that must be, it's over half a mile. So it wasn't long after that, that his whole family was back out there and everything was back to normal. Wow. So it sounds like there were a lot of people, everyone looked out for each other during the blizzard. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, the last one, the last blizzard we had was in uh, April of this year. And uh, sort of at the height of the blizzard, we hear a roar and it was pretty quiet because um, there was nobody moving. Hear a roar out back, open the door, wait out through the snow. Who is it? It's our neighbor next door. They live only five miles away. He was there in a skidoo, wanted to know how we were doing. He had a dozen eggs, a bunch of bacon, and I can't remember what, something else. I can't remember what it was. So he brought us supplies just in case we'd run low, but we hadn't. Mm. So that's another example of that sort of thing. And, and of course, Ross made his way into town. and I, mean, I, I guess he made his way into town and got the huff and came back out. And we were, we were stranded without uh, being able to get in or out for five days that time. We got, the, the storm started on Thursday and plugged most of the highways in the province that day, and they were all plugged by Friday the next day. It was still snowing and raining, and it was pretty dangerous to be on the roads because there was quite an accumulation of, uh, of ice in the roads. But of course, it was the right time of year because warm weather was coming, and that's why we had, we'd waited. Yeah, we did. We should have waited another week. Anyway, I was, I was uh, pretty busy trying to keep the, be, trying to be able to get to the garage from the the, uh, the house, and it's not very far. Uh, maybe I don't know, 30, 40 yards at the most, and I was just trying to keep the sidewalk open, and that required a lot of work because every time you took a snow sh uh, shovel full of snow out. With a shovel full of snow waiting for to come back in. Mm -hmm. So I was standing out there once and we had a neighbor there and he's, I'm 80 and I was 80 then and he was about 74 or so and I thought to myself, holy smokes, if something happened to any one of the three of us, we are done. We can't get in. Nobody can get in, we can't get out. And that was that way for five days. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. It was amazing. Any sights, sounds, or smells that you remember from the blizzards? The wind was really something. In, in, the, um, in the October blizzard, I didn't think much of it. But then I was looking, I was looking around the, the room one, one day your, your grandma was there with me. I said, that's water. And it was water dripping from the, the uh, ceiling. We have a cathedral ceiling. It was dripping from the, the edge of the ceiling onto the, onto the flooring. 
And I thought, what's going on? Because there's no water pipes up there. So I get poking around and I get up in the in the attic and we have, you've seen the vents we have in the attic, right? At the in, each end of the, the cabin, they're, so. they're louvered. So they, they sort of hood over each other. So the air can get in. But the theory is that rain can't get in, but I can tell you snow does. And so I got up in the attic and there was a drift of snow from the ex excess wind coming in the north side, from the northwest side, and going out, sucking out through the, through the uh, south side. Of course, once it got into the attic, there's nothing to keep it up anymore because there's no wind in, in there and just fell in the, on the uh, insulation. So I wasn't sure what to do, but I... I knew I had to get it out of there because it was melting. So I got up in there and I took the vent off, which is a good size. And I threw all the snow and stuff and wet insulation out there and then wiped it up as best I could and put the vent back on and went back out and crossed my fingers. And it worked. It quit snow. And, but it's, it's going to happen again, sure as you're sitting there. Maybe not soon, maybe never, because it hadn't happened up until then, and that's about close to 40 years. Could you describe what you remember happening to you after the blizzards? Well, depends which one you're, which blizzard we're talking about. Um, the one with the the one that had the uh, freezing rain on it. Well, they're both really bad, but the one that had the freezing rain with it, um, of course, the deck. And we have a deck on two sides of the the house, and the deck underneath the snow was was a sheet of ice. So you had to be careful walking on the deck. And after it got a little warmer, uh, I loosened the the snow up and the ice up. And I was able to scrape it off. And so I did that and I put, uh, I used salt on the, uh, the cement sidewalk to clean the ice off there so somebody didn't hurt themselves. And of course we had that big oak tree and other branches that we had to clean up and burn and get out of there. Could you remember or describe any sights, sounds and smells from after the blizzards? Well, it was really quiet. <laughs> Even the snowmobilers weren't, weren't out. Um, I know I went, um, I guess it must have been, I went, I went for a run on, on, on one day and it was, it was Friday morning, I remember that. And the blizzard was still with us, but I guess there must have been a let up. So I put my stuff on and went out and I got to the end of the lane and I thought, holy smoke, I don't think I got enough clothes on. I thought, will I go back and change my clothes and put more on her? So I decided not to, not to bother with that because I was only going to go for a short run slog. So I, I got up um, near the... Uh, the yield sign, which is about a half a mile from from the house, 
and I and, and it started to snow again, and I was having trouble seeing the road. And if I looked into the bush, it was all white. You could hardly tell where where the trees were. So I thought this is not good. I should go back home. So I turned around and trotted down the road, and I couldn't find the the road that I'd come up on. And there's a a T by the garbage cans there. And I guess I must have run right by the garbage cans, didn't even see them. And there's another way to get there. So I thought, okay, well, I'll go in. It won't be snowy and windy in the bush, so I'll go in the bush and I'll find my way back. But I couldn't because uh, you couldn't tell where the path was. It was mm-hmm. invisible because of all the snow and the trees was stuck on the trees and stuff. So I ditched that idea, went back out and thought, well, I'll go really slowly this time and I'll pay close attention to where the road turns. And it's, you have to be really blind to not see that. But it was really tough to see. So finally I hit it after three or four tries. And I got home and I was, I was wet, partly from sweat and partly from melted snow. And I was starting to get pretty cold. I, I think I was in the early stages of hypothermia, which is not good if you know anything about that. Unless you get warm fairly quickly, the only one thing that's going to happen, you're going to die in the snow. And it wasn't cold, but it was like it wasn't minus 20, but it would have probably been better if it was. So I got home and I warmed up and I was fine. No sweat. Smells, I can't remember any smells. Like the, the air was just, seemed to be really clean. I guess with all the snow and stuff in the air. And the sights, that the sight was just amazing. Like if I had dropped you somewhere in the middle of the bush there, I think you might still be there. Mm-hmm. Me too. Like you, the only, the only way you could figure out what direction you were going was to hope the wind was blowing in a steady direction and not changing. And it might have, but not very much. Yeah, it would have been pretty tricky. Well, the site, the site too, was it was um, it was kind of foggy. I was having a heck of a time seeing. I think I had my glasses on, but um, it was really difficult to see because of everything being white. No birds, never saw a bird. No animals of any kind, including the squirrels. Didn't see squirrels for days. <laughs> they snuggled down in the bottom of the, the bottom of the, the woodpile, and just stayed there. I guess I don't know. And we were feeding all kinds of birds and squirrels, but not then. After the blizzard's all over, you know. Birds came back to the feeders, and I don't know what they do without the feeders, but I guess they'd have figured it out. Could you describe what effect the blizzards had on you? Well, it had the effect of, of, of shaking me to my senses and, in effect, saying to me, you can't stay here. you got to go. Because... The chances of another blizzard, I think, are probably pretty good in the next five years. 
the thing is, I, I think that that Turtle Mountains and the Turtle Mountain Provincial Park have, God knows how many blizzards they've had, probably thousands of them over the years, but there's nobody there to record them. There isn't a blizzard. <laughs> it's, it's the same same old story. If a tree falls in the forest, does it make a noise? That's a good question. It is a good question. What do you think? <laughs> I don't think it makes a noise if there's nobody there to hear to record it. Looking back on the disaster, how do you feel about it now? Um, I, I kind of like being out in, in those kinds of storms. They're, they're interesting. I, I'm invigorated by them. But I've never, only one time I think I was, I was concerned we were going to be in trouble. That's Kennedy Cahoe, my grandfather, a determined and resilient Manitoban. Speaking of resilience, the second story features another man full of worldly experience with life-threatening situations and climate disasters. When you've spent most of your life dedicated to helping others, you tend to find yourself in the most vulnerable places. Tom Sampson is no stranger to this. Over the last 40 years, he's been a ranger, an EMS chief, a fire deputy chief, and the head of the Calgary Emergency Management Agency, otherwise known as SEMA, before retiring in 2020. When you've seen what he's seen, it tends to stay with you. I sat down with Tom to chat about his experiences and how he envisions resilience as a way forward. Hi, Tom. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you. Um, just to start off, do you mind telling me a little bit about who you are? You bet. Uh, I spent probably 40 years in uniform, uh, five years uh, as a park ranger. Uh, then I went into paramedicine, and I spent 24 years paramedicine. I went over to fire after that. I was a deputy chief of fire for about five years, and then I was the chief of emergency management here in Calgary until I retired. Oh, wow. Um, can you tell me about um, who you were when you were growing up? Why um, paramedicine? No, I actually didn't have any of this terribly planned. I don't think that we certainly, you know, I remember back to grade five, you know, doing projects about, uh, you know, our impact on the world, but uh, I hadn't got a passion for what I was doing yet. And it was more a case of falling into something as opposed to uh, intentionally seeking a, a specific direction. So I want to talk specifically just to start about what were you the doing 2013 floods. The right. Well, I'd, I'd been uh, brought over in 2009 to the fire department to revitalize what was known as the Emergency Management Agency. So in essence, um, it had a staff of two or three people when I joined it. And, uh, you know, we, we pushed that staff level up to 26 to get ourselves ready for uh, disasters and uh, those kind of things that might occur in Calgary. And so I'd had a little bit of a run on it from 2009. In fact, we'd sort of just baked the perfect situation. We had a large emergency operations center. We had uh, what's known as a common operating picture. So all the pieces in place to allow us to, to weather a storm uh, like the storm that hit Calgary. And so, uh, you know, ironically, when the storm actually hit, uh, I was in the Bahamas. And uh, that day, we'd sunk our boat. 
uh, due to a heavy rainfall. And oh, wow. it's so heavy and that the fellow whose boat it was uh, never turned on his bilge pump. But that's a whole other story. But, uh, you know, I called home to sort of say, uh, hey, uh, if you need me to come back, I can come back right away. And my boss, who is the uh, fire chief and director of emergency management, said, no, stay there. And so I ended up coming in about day four, day three or day four of the flood. And uh, we had, um, I think, about 90,000 people evacuated out of 26 communities. And uh, my job was to... Um, help put it all together and, and I served as the acting director of emergency management uh, for the remaining time during the flood. Mm -hmm. um, do you mind telling me what you saw? Were you uh, in any of the communities, what did you see or smell or hear when you were there? Well, you know, we had uh, prior to the flood, um, the year prior, we had looked at some maps on potential flooding levels, you know, the sort of the one to 100 year flood and certain flow rates. And, you know, we had um, around 2,100 cubic meters per second flowing through Calgary. And so that wasn't anything that we had ever really seriously contemplated. That's like the Niagara Falls going through downtown uh, Calgary, a uh, combination of the Bow and the Elbow Rivers. And so, um, we had uh, catastrophic flooding, um, flooding that affected people's homes, 90,000 people, as I said, out of the residences um, and moved to other locations. And so it was, um, it was a full-on fight to uh, try and evacuate the water and then try to, um, try to get people home again so they could start rebuilding. And uh, I, I mean, I, I, the thing that I remember the most is, is, you know, having these incredible numbers of pumping teams and those sorts of things going from house to house to house, you know, uh, pumping 24-7 with large pumps. And, um, and then after the pumps were done, you know, the, 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 the sort of the residential areas, we moved to some uh, sort of critical uh, uh, other areas and businesses, and we just didn't even turn off turn off what we did and we didn't we didn't mind who we were working for or with um, our job was to kind of try and get Calgary to bounce back and of course as you can imagine that uh, was everything from getting people uh, home again to getting building inspections going power back on um, a debris management plan those sorts of things and so we had it all and uh, and you know our my role mm -hmm. uh, in the emergency operations center was to um, call together the 65 members that we have, or 60 members, sorry, uh, that we had in the Emergency Operations Center uh, from the various areas. And, and, uh, prepared at the time, or was it sort of chaotic? Well, I mean, I think the very definition of any disaster is that it overwhelms you. And so, um, you know, we had been well-practiced on disasters that happened in, you know, one disaster. But, I mean, we had disasters within disasters. We had uh, large fires. We had the Calgary Zoo, as I mentioned. You know, I mean, I don't think there's many people who have had to deal with a hippopotamus outbreak, you know, sort of thing. And so we didn't just have a disaster. We had disasters within the disasters. And we had a city of... 1.2 million people that kept on doing things and kept on having calls and those sorts of things. And so, you know, we really focused on providing what I would say or support for the critical infrastructure and for the people of Calgary. So during, I guess, the cleanup process must have been arduous. Um, do you remember? I mean, it's been a while. Do you remember anything, a specific house or a specific people? They were all evacuated by then, though. 
But when you saw the flood damage, how did it make you feel? Um, I, I guess what I would say is you, you have a bit of a sense of disconnectedness uh, from it. it um, and it, you know, you, uh, the time for the emotion is later rather than at the time, right? And so um, I think the, the, the largest piece for me was that feeling of uh, uh, when I came in, of course I'd been on vacation, when I came in, everybody was overwhelmed. And I was the guy who was supposed to be fresh, but I actually hadn't slept in the previous 36 hours. So, you know, it, it, you, you come into that and you've still got to work. And so that's a really common trait in, uh, in disasters is that when you come in, um, you know, it's never a smooth entry and you're, you're always um, predominantly exhausted when you start. There's a big piece there about how to be team and how to play better with others when you're exhausted. Mm-hmm. And you've, um, you've been doing this for quite some time. Does it always feel like that? You know, I, I think it gets better with time, but I think the other thing that happens with time is that um, you start to develop a cadre of people that you take with you and that you know have your back and, uh, and that will support you regardless of what happens. And by that, what I mean is um, if I looked at you and said, uh, I need you to get the RCMP to do X, Y, or Z, they'll go do it, and it's done. And that's, that's all you need to say, it's done. And so um, there's, uh, there's incredible strength with that. And I think the more, uh, the more you've done that, the more you recognize who you need to take with you. And, and as a result, what you do is you're not, it's a force multiplier. You're not one person. You're a number of people who have a capacity to execute on the problem. And uh, I'm very, very uh, goal-oriented. And... When I work in the EOC, it's no different. In an emergency operations center, we'll set goals every four hours of what we're trying to attain. We'll uh, delegate who's responsible for them, and then they'll report back and tell us the percentage complete mm-hmm. of that goal. And so we do that, whether that's um, Slave Lake wildfire and trying to get gas and power back into place, or whether that's the Calgary floods, or even a smaller event like, uh, you know, we had snow timber here in Alberta. Yeah. I guess this, that's a good segue. I can ask you a little bit more about the Slave Lake wildfire. Right. What was that like um, stepping into that? Were you, pre- I guess, not what was prepared? But. Well, we, yeah, we ended up driving to Slave Lake, which was uh, a longer ordeal than, than I really, I didn't have an appreciation for how far away it was. So uh, I was with Chief McMullen. Um, he's the chief of Red Deer Fire now. And he and I drove up to... Uh, to Slave Lake and, uh, you know, just sort of, you remember these funny things, right? You know, we drove up behind a cop car and, and uh, the guy was kind of going slowly, so we pushed up on him, on him a bit and he went a little bit faster. So and we, we pushed up on him a little harder and by the time we were done, we were, we were all doing about 150k an hour up, going up to uh, to Slave. But I pulled into Slave and, and I went into the emergency operations center and um, you know, just a great gang there who had been overwhelmed uh, and had been up for hours, uh, days actually. And I said, you know, hey, uh, Tom Sampson from Calgary, I was asked to come up, how can I help? And they sort of looked at me and said, we want you to take control. And, uh, you know, you, you sit here now and you go, whoa, <laughs> that was a big move on their part. But uh, they had a, a brilliant mayor, a brilliant uh, administrator. and. I just set up an agreement with them that uh, I would consider myself fired every day after every day. 
and uh, they could decide whether they would hire me again in the next morning. But if you hired me for that day, I would make decisions for the town that day. We wouldn't have uh, committee meetings and we wouldn't be, uh, you know, consulting the world on how to best put out the fire. We would be working with our partners in Alberta Wildfire. Mm -hmm. uh, we'd be working with the urban firefighters in Slave Lake and we'd be uh, working towards our goals and our you know that we'd set out for that time period and so that was a uh, uh, that really went well um it was it was also troubling of course but um oh sorry to interrupt yep. of course but when you were at slave lake what did you see well the town you know uh, i don't know whether you've ever seen a tiger torch or uh, you know a heavy blow torch uh, that kind of thing um it was like somebody had taken you know a tiger torch to the town and um, the the area had been burned, and 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 they had experienced 100 kilometer kilometer an hour winds, and so it was dry. There's high winds, and the fire was unstoppable at that point in time. And so really, you were just playing defense. Um, I remember the first day we were there, we had 24 fires in the community, separate fires in the community of house fires that had been started by you know, wind picking up bits of ash and depositing them on roofs and those sorts of things. And, you know, later uh, when the devastation had gone through, uh, we still had fires burning in people's basements and those sorts of things. And this town was, you know, when people say scorched earth, um, that's what it was. It was scorched earth. We had to bring uh, people in with GPS cameras so that they could take photos and try and figure out where they were in town. All the signs were melted. The you know cars were in the driveway with um, simply a pile of aluminum on the on the ground where their tires had been and those sorts of things. And so, and meanwhile, while all of that was occurring, we still had um, it's a heavy hunting community. We had ammunition going off in people's basements as the basements burned. Uh, we were losing water pressure uh, to fight the fire because, of course, everybody's um, water lines had burned. And so the, the houses were just simply flowing water into their basement while the fire was still going on. And so you had all these houses with these little fountains where the water came in. And, uh, and, and, and of course, you ran through your water really quickly. And so we, had, we ended up relay pumping uh, out of the lake in order to get enough water for firefighting activities. So it was, it, it was literally scorched earth. Everybody had been evacuated and, you know, that was a full town evacuation. Full town. And, um, you know, uh, uh, I mean, to me, Slave Lake was the turning point for a lot of things in the sense that we got a lot more serious about emergency management and the importance of emergency management and coordinated, you know, a system of coordination. And we got a lot more serious about the climate impacts of, of what was going on. You know, if you look, Slave Lake was actually one of the ones that precipitated us starting to look at, you know, uh, how could we how could we do this wildland urban interface of fire and how we could have better impacts by, you know, building things like, um, you know, playground as, or large uh, soccer pitches around the outside of a town as opposed to in the center of the town so that you could have almost a, a green belt that protected you from the forest. Mm -hmm. You told me you had a great team that was yep. working with you. Is there anything that you wish you had more support in or help you received? I mean, seeing as how you were at the very top of the chain of command. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think the, <clears throat> the thing 
that are, you know, you wish you had is time, and you, but, but nobody can give you that, right? You know, so we were working pretty much 18 hours a day, and, um, you know, you know, you wouldn't call your family. You wouldn't do anything. You sort of left what you were doing, went back to a hotel that was actually closed and that you'd opened and, you know, had no power in it, and you grabbed a bed and slept, and then you got up in the morning and you did the same thing again. And so we, you know, what would you have that you didn't have? Yeah, I'd probably have things like, uh, you know, uh, counselors there, uh, massage therapists, um, I'd open a Timmy's or something like that, you know, things because, uh, you know, you, 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 I know you smiled at that one, but, um, you know, for the first couple of days, um, we, we ate sort of uh, bread and, and meat and that was it. We didn't have, you know, so we felt like we were uh, probably spoiled compared to some places in the world that have climate disaster. Um, you mentioned your family. Do you mind telling me a bit about them? Yeah, I've got a family of uh, five, now six, but uh, 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 my wife of now 40 years, and my um, I have uh, a son and daughter. They're both in Dalhousie uh, doing uh, advanced degrees, and I have a daughter who stays at home with us. She has Down syndrome, and so she lives with us. And then, uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much us, uh, family family out on the West Coast, but that's it. Oh, wow. Do you, um, when you think about how things are changing and the climate is shifting in a way that is sort of unpredictable, how do you feel that will affect your kids, um, and what do you hope for them? You know, the, I think it's really interesting. There's a lot of Canadians that say, you know, climate change, oh great, you mean we won't have as cold a winters and those sorts of things. And I think what they don't understand is that, you know, we have gone from a time, or at least it feels like, mm-hmm. it feels like we have gone from a time when uh, we had the occasional good storm to the times where we have uh, property destroying storms, you know, the hail storm. And now I'm going to get the, the, the numbers wrong for Northeast Calgary, but I think it was the summer of 2020. It might have been 2019. I think I do remember the big golf ball-sized right. hail. Right, and I mean, I'm a terrible historian for dates. Uh, <laughs> I but, think you're right. you know, uh, that storm wasn't uh, predicted by, by Environment Canada. Uh, and, in fact, we got a late storm warning when the storm hit. And so, and that storm did $1.4 billion of damage. I mean, $1.4 It, you know, took a community, Northeast Calgary, that is, you know, sometimes challenged, you know, from a socioeconomic perspective, and it absolutely pummeled people. So when I think about it for my kids, I think about resilience uh, in terms of, what we do and how we do it. And so I worry for my kids, but I also know that um, we increasingly are taking steps to mitigate those kind of things, but I think we're also raising attention to those things that are causing climate change. And we're moving in a positive direction. I'm not sure we're moving fast enough, but we're moving in a positive direction. Do you have hope for the future? Absolutely, you have to have hope for the future, right? Like, I I mean, I, I, I am, and incredibly optimistic despite having been some of the worst disasters that Canada has ever managed um, I'm incredibly optimistic about the future why do you think you're optimistic what is it what is it in you that leads to you to hoping for the best if you know 
I think there's a, a combination of things, and that is that I, I have faith that uh, people have incredible resilience. Um, and, you know, you mentioned um, uh, just, just some of your background before we started this interview. And, and I would bet that your family has had some incredible resilience to move from where they were to where they are today. And, and I think all of us, and I mean all of us who are Canadians, um, welcome that kind of resiliency. And, and I think we're far more capable than we think we are. The big piece is we have to work together not in silos. And so I'm optimistic for how that turns out. Um, I believe, you know, I, obviously I have a whole crew that are still in Calgary Emergency Management. And uh, although I'm not there anymore, I have great confidence in their capacity to plan for and execute on disasters. Mm -hmm. um, I think my final question for you is um, you've had the opportunity to speak a bit on some of the things you've seen and experienced and worked through but um, for today outside of your plans what do you want to do for yourself personally uh, a bit of self-care you know <laughs> well yeah I, I you know I would tell you that I don't think anybody works in the medical field for 24 years and doesn't have PTSD you know, and I know that, and, and uh, that would be easy to figure out after a short conversation with me. Deciding how you manage that within yourself and what you, um, you know, forgive yourself for the mistakes that you've made and, and, uh, and, and try and move past them so that you can teach others from those mistakes that you've made. Um, I think that sounds really good, but I wake every night with bad dreams. And so, you know, you go to counseling, you, you do the things that you need to do to, um, to do that. So. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Yeah. And thank you for the work you've done and the people you've helped. For the Climate Disaster Project, I'm Mofa Adenarin. That was Tom Sampson, retired chief of SEMA and a man well-versed in the ways that climate change can shift our lives forever. Thanks for listening to Weathering the Storm, stories of the climate crisis from Alberta and around the world. I'm Alex Yance. And I'm Mufa Adenarin. This series is powered by Shaw and a part of the Community Podcast Initiative based out of Mount Royal University. It was produced on the land that are home to the Nitsitsapi, Iyahe Nakoda, and Sitsina and Métis people. We recognize the stewards of these lands, and we hope to contribute to a better understanding of our environment by sharing the stories of those affected by climate change. Special thanks to our partner, the Climate Disaster Project, and to Kennedy Cahoe and Tom Sampson for joining us. You can learn more about the Climate Disaster Project at climatedisasterproject.com. Be sure to subscribe to the show to hear the latest episodes and discover new podcasts from the Community Podcast Initiative at thepodcaststudio.ca.